at 2 Chronicles 31, 1-6, which can be found on page 4 of your bulletin. Now, when all this was finished, all Israel who were present went out to the cities of Judah and broke in pieces the pillars and cut down the Asherim and broke out broke down the high places and the altars throughout all of Judah and Benjamin and in Ephraim and Manasseh until they had destroyed them all. Then all the people of Israel returned to their cities, every man to his possession. And Hezekiah appointed the divisions of the priests and of the Levites, division by division, each according to his service, the priests and the Levites, for burnt offerings and and peace offerings, to minister in the gates of the camp of the Lord and to give thanks and praise. The contribution of the king from his own possessions was for the burnt offerings, the burnt offerings of morning and evening, and the burnt offerings for the Sabbaths, the new moons, and the appointed feasts, as it is written in the law of the Lord. And he commanded the people who lived in Jerusalem to give the portion due to the priests and the Levites, that they might give themselves to the law of the Lord. As soon as they commanded, oh, as soon as the command was spread abroad, the people of Israel gave in abundance the first fruits of grain, wine, oil, honey, and of all the produce of the field. And they brought in abundantly the tithe of everything. And the people of Israel and Judah who lived in the cities of Judah also brought in the tithe of the cattle and sheep and the tithe of the dedicated things that had been dedicated to the Lord their God and laid them in heaps. This is the word of the Lord. Please join me as we pray. Oh God, we pray now that you might open the eyes of our heart, that we might uh, see your truth indeed, that we might see your righteousness, that we might see um, your glory, but we pray that we would see you because we know that will change us. So would you do that? faithful to your name. In Christ's name, amen. Well, if you are a regular part of this community, you know we have spent this past week in our small groups or community groups, we call them, discussing the idea of financial giving within the church. And as that topic was before us, one of our members sent me a note and said, hey, Glenn, I thought you might be interested in an outline Uh, a class that I taught actually for the church a couple years ago and sent me the outline and it was such a fine outline. Uh, In fact, I used it as one of my resources for this sermon and wrote a little note to her and said, thank you. And she responded by saying, you're welcome. I just love the topic of stewardship. And I have to admit her joy took me off guard. You know, her enthusiasm took me off guard because I think I am so used to true confessions in my own personal life approaching the topic of money with worry and dread. (laughs) Maybe you're like that as well. Uh, It's a tense time. It's something that makes us feel uncomfortable. I think it can happen in the larger church as well. And what's inspiring is when you're in a community or around a person that believes this that God is able to provide, but more so, he has invited us to be partners in his firm. 
that God is not only able to provide, but he's invited us, invited us to partner with him, and we're involved in these grand purposes that he's executing. Now that puts a different spin on financial giving. And what it does is it connects the dots this way, that financial generosity is actually a result of rich faith. And we see that in our passage this evening. King Hezekiah is trying to lead Israel out of spiritual bankruptcy into a place of revival and reformation. And as he does that, one of the direct results of that work is generosity. And so what I'd like us to do this evening is to think about the topic of generosity revived. And I'll put three thoughts before us. That the revival of our generosity touches our heart, it helps us grasp the need, and it instills a practice in us. So those three things, heart, need, and practice. Let's start with the first one. Revival of generosity touches the heart. Now, as I mentioned, Israel at this time in this passage is just coming off a terrible spiritual bankruptcy. And it actually occurred under Hezekiah's father, Ahaz. He had led Israel away from their worship of God. He had led them into false worship, idolatry. And he had literally shut the doors of the temple. Shut the place of the worship of God. There had been no worship going on of God. And so God's spirit inspires Hezekiah, his son. And the result is this. He first reinstitutes the worship of God's people. He reorganized the priest and he reestablishes the financial giving of the community. That's the process of the reforms that likely unpacked over several years. We get a compressed narrative here. And we see there a relationship between spiritual health and financial giving. Now, I, I want to suggest this is a little different than you'll find in some pockets of the Christian church, where sometimes spiritual health is equated with personal wealth. If I'm healthy spiritually, then that means I have more possessions. But I actually think that what you find in the New Testament is spiritual health isn't so much about you having more, but you giving more away. That's the sign that you find in the New Testament. It's generosity, not what I possess, so to speak. You may possess very little. You may possess a lot. The question is, what do you do with it? And so the first step of that in verse 1 we see is Israel needs to remove the idols or the false gods that are before them in the land. And they do this both radically, they break them down and tear them apart, and they do it thoroughly, it says, until all of them are destroyed. As we read that, I think many times for a modern reader, we have a simplistic view of idolatry. As if these were primitive people and they looked at a statue and said, you know, that's a statue. No, it's a god. I think I'll worship it. You know, that's a little simplistic. What we find is idolatry is much more complex. What they were tempted to do and did was to take a thing and to look to that thing for security and prosperity. 
in the same way that you and I might look to a job. In fact, we call it job security. You and I might look to money. In fact, we call it financial freedom. You and I might look to a fund. Some people call it a trust fund. Where we might be looking more to our savings account than the God who saves us. This past week, I've been having a conversation with someone who's very dear to me, and they don't live in the city, uh, so don't try to figure out who they are. Uh, They're not from this community. And um, it's a single mom who is struggling with a big financial decision. And she's been wrestling back and forth, just going, what do I do here? I've got kids to take care of. If I make this financial commitment, will I have what I need in the future? And just struggling, not able to sleep, worried about a large sum of money that she might be needing to give. And as we were talking, I said to her, for someone who's a believer, the promise that there'll be provision in the future isn't based upon their flawless financial decisions. It's based upon a faithful God who loves them. And so our future isn't, am I going to make just the right decision with my finances? But there is a, a God who is committed to take care of me and to love me. And isn't this what Jesus seeks to convince us of in Luke chapter 12, famous passage where he says, don't be anxious about what you'll wear or the stuff you have. Don't you know the father takes, you know, the lilies of the field are beautiful. He adorns them. He feeds the birds. He counts the hairs in your head. In fact, we might even imagine a little game in heaven where every day the angel comes up to God and says, how many hairs? You know, Hoburg, you know, 90,000 and decreasing every day. But, you know, that God every day knows those number of hairs, that he knows us so intimately. Jesus is pressing into his listeners a how much more, how much more ethic of understanding God and his love for us. And here's the thing. I think when it comes to money, many times we are relating to God as a banker, like a loan officer. Won't you give me some more? He's trying to relate to us as a father and as a faithful bridegroom. This is what Jesus tells us as he teaches. And so there's a direct link again between our heart and our generosity. Let me give you some examples. When you and I uh, are weak in believing God's affection for us, when his love for us isn't filling us up the way it should, you'll be more vulnerable to make impulse purchases because our desires will be ruling over us. You and I will be more vulnerable to get in the debt to try to make a purchase we don't really need. We'll be more vulnerable to be, uh, you know, catalog gawking or visiting websites where we want to buy this thing and we just keep going back to it. When we're low on the belief of God's affection for us, we'll seek it out in other ways. Or another example, when we doubt the faithful provision of a God who cares and we're overcome by fear and dread, we will tell ourselves, I can't give to God in his mission or I'll have to give leftovers. And what we find here is Hezekiah is instructing the people, according to the law of Moses, that they should give from their first fruits. As soon as the command was spread abroad, the people of Israel gave in abundance the first fruits of grain, wine, oil, honey, and all of the produce of the field. Now, what's the significance of first fruits? A first fruit is to basically say, I don't know 
how things are going to turn out with my harvest. You know, or, or I don't know what the next month is going to hold for me. But I'm going to give this to you first, God. I don't know how the sales are going to go with my property, but I'm going to give this to you first. And, and just true confessions here. You know, I, and I'll put this on me, and Meg and I, we've got turned around in the last couple of years. Because we have been giving not first fruits, but leftovers. Meaning, we used to give at the beginning of the month. And then over the last couple of years, we got into this pattern where we give at the end of the month. And you know what happens. Tuitions, things break down, bills come in, and God began to convict us of it. And so we switched it back around. And he just reminded us what he's taught us through our entire marriage. Guess what? We're able to do it. It's sort of like exercising, right? I have no time to exercise. I have no time to exercise. I have no time to exercise. And then you begin to exercise, and you have all the time in the world to do what you need. There's a reason for first fruits. Why? Because it's a trust thing, one that we struggle to do. But also, it's a first love thing. In the book of Revelation, Jesus rebukes one of the churches and says, you've forgotten your first love. First fruit really means first love. But here's the thing. How do you recover your first love? Well, we've been singing about it. You recover your first love by remembering who loved you first. It's the Lord that loved Israel first. It's the Lord that loves us first. It's the story of the gospel. We were spiritually bankrupt, poor in spirit, a debt that we could not pay. And God sent his inexpressible gift, Jesus Christ inexpressible gift of Jesus Christ who took on my moral debt, who paid my price, who credited to my account his righteousness and has made you and I co-heirs in his kingdom. This is what God has done through his son. He has loved us first. And as we understand those benefits, it changes the way that we radically and thoroughly look at the idols of our own lives. And I would say that's the charge for anybody that would profess themselves to be a believer. We have to radically and thoroughly look at our lives with respect to our desires and money. You know, and it may look like small things. It may be that, you know, you have some investments, but you don't check them five times a day. You sit there and you go, you know, I'm going to put a limit on myself. Or I'm, gonna, I, I, I'm not going to purchase anything unless I pray about it for three weeks. I don't mean food, you know. But something that's an extra, you know. I don't know what it would look like for you. But it's got to look like something. Where we come before God and his love leads us to say, I want to radically rid my life. And I want to be clear, it's not the amount you give. I mean, Jesus holds up. You know, what's the great example of the Gospels of the person that gave money? It's the widow that barely had a penny. It's not the matter of the amount. In fact, we already know that the poor are much better giving than the rich. I was reading an Atlantic article that was citing 2011 stats, and you're familiar with this, that the top 20% give 1.3. The lower 20% give 3.2. And the lower 20%, that's the lower income in our country, they don't claim it as deductions. And they also found in evidence that those that are wealthy tend to give to things like museums and colleges. But the lower income, the poor, give to charities, religions, religious causes, and social needs. 
And so many times, it's those that are poor within the church that instruct those that are well off. But this is the point. If you and I believe that having more money will make us more generous, we're duped. Because more money can't make you generous. Only the gospel can. Only the lavish love of God can. That's what makes you generous. That's where we get the language from the New Testament about giving that says overflowing joy, rich generosity, eagerness, readiness, enthusiasm. Who does that remind you of? It's God. That describes God's love for his people. It's lavish grace. It's rich in mercy. It's he came for you when you didn't even know that you needed him to come for you. It's the initiator. It's the God of the Christian gospel. That's how people become generous. Point two. A revival in generosity means we begin to grasp the need. And here, let's look at the need of worship, mercy, and mission. Now, the reason Hezekiah gets the ties back going, or rather say the result of it, is the worship of God gets kick-started again. The mercy of God goes forth in the mission. And we know this from the tithes. Israel was called to give three tithes. And tithe just means tenth. The law required they give a tenth. There was a, a tithe that went to the worship of God's people. There was a tithe that went to the... Uh, upkeep of the temple and the great festivals they'd had. And the third tithe was for the poor. And so as he institutes those three tithes, that means those things can move forward. And I think it's important we see there is a direct link between the generosity of God's people and the ministry going forward. Our ministry does not go forward unless God's people give. He should set it up that way on purpose. And so with worship, Here we read the support goes to the Levites. The Levites were a tribe in Israel that basically their responsibility was to handle worship. They were singers, they were gatekeepers, and a subset of them were priests that that led the offerings and conducted them. And so they're at a period, right, where worship has stopped. Ahaz had shut the temple doors. And Hezekiah understands that if those doors are going to get back open, the people of God are going to have to give. Worship's going to need to continue. And why is this so important to you and I? Because both the Old Testament and the New Testament teach that worship is the primary way that you get transformed. I don't know if there's an area in your life that you're struggling to change. Have you ever thought that worshiping God would be the secret? You can go to Psalm 73 where there's a Levite priest who's really struggling with envy. He looks around and he sees those in his culture that are healthy, they're wealthy, they have money, and he feels like he doesn't have squat. And he's struggling with it. It's a great psalm to read. He's wrestling with all this envy about possessions and stuff. And then he says, but I went into the sanctuary of God, the worship of God, and my heart changed. I saw his love for me. I saw how he had actually been protecting me by not, by not giving me the stuff I wanted. He was transformed. The New Testament teaches the same thing. The Apostle Paul writes, In worship we behold the glory of the Lord, and we are transformed into the same image of Jesus from one degree of glory to the other. As we come together, and the beauty of Jesus Christ is lifted up, the beauty of his sacrifice for sinful people, 
the satisfaction that it has made for us before God, the moral beauty of his life, as we see that and we come together, we are changed. There's a very practical reason why the giving of the church goes toward worship or to the staff of the church, right, or supporting pastors or a myriad of people that work. It's because we need to be transformed. We need to be changed. That's what we do here week to week. And as important it is to be in community, and community is a big deal. Oftentimes, when people say, why am I at Grace DC? They'll say, because of community. I want to say amen to that, but I also want to say community in and of itself can do nothing. Just being in community doesn't change you. It's a community that is worshiping and seeing Christ lifted up. So the worship gets going. And then we can also read in Acts 2 this. And here I want to make the link quickly to the mercy and mission. And they devoted themselves. This is describing the early church. Some of you are familiar with this verse, but I'm asking you to listen in a different way. The connection between the worship and the mission and the mercy. Listen. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul. And they were selling their possessions, distributing the proceeds to any that had need. Attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. As I mentioned, one of the tithes Israel was to give was for the poor. And you see in the early church as well, as they gather together and they worship God, this impulse of generosity to the needy just overflows. And it's something that I've just praised God for our community. I feel like he has given us part of his heartbeat. You just heard about it earlier in the testimony. So grateful. But we have to understand, as you look at, especially Israel, there was a pattern. There was always a relationship between idolatry and injustice. When things became too important to people, injustice began to flow. And my friends, that's what we're experiencing in our city at this moment. Idolatry. Maybe it's the idolatry to have the beautiful city. Maybe it's the idolatry to get the highest market rate on a, a, a piece of land that someone sells. It could be a homeowner or development. But the bottom line is that people that used to live can't live here anymore. Idolatry is causing injustice. The poor can't live. The poor just disappear. And it's the people of God that step in and go, no, with their financial generosity and go, no, the mercy of God will triumph in whatever way it can. That's the mission. That's what we've been committed to. And again, I praise God from the beginning, our partner ministries that our diaconate looks over, our housing study committee that met on Friday night, whether we're investing in youth, tutoring, but also mission. Because, again, we heard in the Acts thing that those, you know, added to their number day by day, those who were being saved. When you read about the command in Hezekiah, it was very interesting. There's a little phrase that said the command went abroad. It actually means it got contagious. It just basically caught fire throughout Israel. God revived the hearts of his people and the mission went forward. Why did God choose Israel? Because they were better than everybody else? No. They were to be a model and a messenger to the world. They were be, to be a light 
to the world. That's why he called them, to be a witness. And so his purpose would be that the mission would go forward. And it's the same with our financial giving, whether it's sending Jonathan and Christy Lee to work with one of our Mideast partners, whether it's supporting the Offners who do campus ministry, whether it's working with Capitol Hill Pregnancy Center to help pregnant teens. Our financial giving goes so that the mission might go forward. And so if the giving doesn't go forward in the way it should, worship stops, mercy stops, and mission stops just does. And so you and I need to be mindful not only of the heart of generosity, but the need of it, because God has made you and I agents of change. He's endowed us with dignity and respect. We are, as one person said, people of causation. We cause things, good or bad, to happen. He's given us that role within his church. But lastly, to close... It's not only uh, the need, but the practice. As Hezekiah restores uh, tithing, there's a practice that he restores. Now, one of the questions that regularly comes up is, is the Old Testament law, what's called the law of Moses, is it binding on, on believers today, Christians today? And I would say the specific law is not binding, but the practice is. Okay? The specific law is not binding, but the practice is. And we see it evidenced in the New Testament whether it be Jesus assuming that his followers would continue to give offerings, whether it be the Apostle Paul telling the Corinth church, I want you at the beginning of each week on the Sabbath to set aside a sum of money so we can help these afflicted Christians, whether it be in the book of Corinthians where he says that giving will be a test of sincerity, a means by which we redistribute our gifts to those that are in need, or Acts 20. This to me is very interesting. The Apostle Paul is saying goodbye to the elders at Ephesus. This is the last time he's going to see them. It's a very emotional passage. They end by just falling all over him and crying and weeping because they know he's going to be martyred. So this is the last thing he can say to these church leaders. And you know what he says to them? He goes, I want you to remember this about my life. I didn't covet anybody's money. And everything that I did and taught, I tried to display that we should help the needy And then I want to leave you with these final words of Jesus Christ. It's more blessed to give than to receive. That's what he gave the leaders of the church. I feel that as a leader. I feel that conviction upon me. Hezekiah, we're told, was giving out of his own. This is the practice that still goes on with God's people today, even if it's not the exact law. And the call to law, what we have to understand is the call in the New Testament isn't less, certainly, than what God intended for his people. And that goes to this last question. And that is, if a tithe could be required, how could it come out of love? How could it come out of love? That's one of the questions we have in the Old Testament, right? And and this is such a quintessential modern American question. You know why? Because our idea is if anybody required me to do anything, I certainly couldn't love it, right? I mean, if I'm, if I'm being compelled to do something, if the freedom's gone, the love is gone, baby. I need the freedom, I'll give you the love. But apply that to marriage for a second. A married couple going, you know, only when we're free from our marriage vows can we really learn to love each other. It's foolishness. You see, the law had a particular thing that it did for us. It did make many things the moral law. But one thing it was, it was to take us deeper into who we really are, our heart. 
It exposes our failures to love, but more so, it gives us a vision for what love looks like. Because as sinful people, and we are, we got pretty crazy views of what love is. I mean, you know, we justify workaholism for love. I just love my job. We justify controlling our children out of love. We justify leaving marriages out of love. I mean, let's just be honest. We got some pretty crazy notions of love. We need God's help to say this is what love looks like. So when he instituted the idea of the tithe and the offerings, he was trying to say this is what love looks like. It looks like worship. It looks like mercy. It looks like mission. And it continues to look that way. Final, you know, final uh, financial generosity looks like love. When Jesus came in the Sermon on the Mount, he said, I'm not coming to abolish the law. I'm trying to take you deeper. I'm trying to take you to this place to go, you know, murder's the baseline. I'm trying to bring you to a point where you start to see unrighteous anger is wrong. Adultery's the baseline. I'm trying to let you see that lusting after people is wrong. The tithe was the floor, not the ceiling. Why? Because of the gospel. Because God had come. And he had come in their midst. And so we have a new commandment that Christ has given us. And what did he mean by new commandment? It meant that Jesus' life would totally blow up and redefine what love looked like. As we would see the extravagant love of God the Father giving his one and only son, giving him freely, giving him unconditionally, giving him to us over and over and over again. We would no longer be asking our, uh, ourselves the question, gee, will God give me what I need to participate in his plan? You don't ask the question anymore. Or we don't ask the question anymore, do I really have to? I mean, that, that's off the table, right? Because we've been so moved by what he has done, his gift. It's the most inspiring vision of God we could have. And here's the beauty of it. You know, God, what inspires me about people that really understand this is just this secret. That it's, it's like they got this secret joy that I want. You know, they understand the proverb that says, Honor the Lord with your wealth and the first fruits of all your produce, and your, you, you know, your, your barn will be filled with plenty. Or out of Malachi, bring the full tithe into the storehouse, put me to the test, see if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is more no more than you would need. It's the secret that folks are in on. And I've seen it in our community. I've seen it with the single mom that gives when she doesn't have money to give. I've seen it with the poor Christians that lavish hospitality on me when I spend time with them. I see it in even local churches. You know, when we started this church, Capital Baptist hardly knew me at all. Didn't They, they gave us money. They said, here, money, because we want to see you prosper. Or National Community Church. If you've been to Ebenezer's Coffee House, all those proceeds go to mission and work. They don't keep it. I mean, there's so many inspiring examples, inspiring examples of people in this community. Do you want in on that? I want in on that. I don't want to be left out of that. And so, let me say this. If you are a member or regular attender of this community, I want to challenge you to give, to start to give. The amount doesn't matter. Exercising the muscle. Begin to believe that God will provide what you need to give something because 
it's very important for your soul. You will feel you will feel half a follower of Christ if you don't feel like he could provide for you to give something. And if you are someone that regularly gives, or or if you're someone that does give, I want to encourage you to give in a planned way, just like we saw referred to. It wasn't just tithes occasionally. It was in the rhythm of the life. That you would, in your mind, sit down and go, I want to give first fruits, not afterthoughts. And if you are someone that does give and you give regularly, then I want to call you to aspire. You know, one of the things that the Spirit of God does when the gospel comes is he writes the law in our hearts. You know what that means? He gets the love of God into our imagination, into our creativity. That's what we want to see. Imagination, aspiration. That each of us could say, you know, I want to set a vision for that sort of love. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the inexpressible gift of Jesus. I pray that you would help us to believe. I pray you would help us to believe that you are who you said you are. In Christ's name, amen.